Okay, wow, okay, yeah. Um, it's about to get crazy, because I, I have a lot of content. I had to cut out a lot. I had like up to like two hours of content, but I cut it, so don't worry. But we'll see, yeah. We'll see what we can get through all. I'll, I'll have to skip over some stuff probably, but yeah, yeah, so. This is apologetics, the seminar on apologetics. I'm so glad you guys could be here. Where do I even begin with apologetics? I think for me, I'm, I'm a biblical studies person. Um, that's kind of my, been my emphasis and focus and like what I like get my training and schooling in. But apologetics, I've taken apologetics classes or at least one for undergrad and then one for graduate school. And I think apologetics was really important for me because I had some struggles in my faith or just doubts and and wrestled with, yeah, like just the spiritual elements where is this a heart issue and am I, you know, just is this something on me or do I have genuine questions just about my faith that are good questions to have. And so apologetics, I hope tonight, it's this huge field that people are even getting PhDs in now where people used to get PhDs in philosophy. They'd usually have to go to secular universities to get PhDs in philosophy. And we'll talk about some of those guys. But now Apologetics is becoming so big that you can get your PhD in apologetics at Christian seminaries. And so apologetics is this entirely huge realm that you could spend years and years studying, getting degrees in it. I took classes that lasted a semester, so that lasted for, for a semester or so. So we're trying to cram all this into an hour, hour and a half. And so please pray for me and pray for yourselves, and we'll see how much we can get through. But I first want to start with just the importance of apologetics, the importance of apologetics. So number one, God commands us to do apologetics, to defend the faith. And I'll talk about 1 Peter 3, verse 15 in a second. But number one, God commands us to do apologetics. And as we're talking about for outreach month and just as Christians, right, we are given the great commission by Christ to make disciples. We're called to go proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's going to require us interacting with people who are going to have questions, people that are going to challenge us. And so we need to be ready to make a defense for our faith. And we'll see that in scripture and we'll see that how that plays out with some people, some Christians and how they've approached it. Second, apologetics strengthens our faith. So I kind of mentioned how I had seasons in my life where I kind of struggled and had questions about the reliability of scripture or, yeah, like just whether or not I can trust certain things from scripture or, or whatever. And so I think apologetics, what it does as well is it strengthens our faith as Christians, where, of course, faith is faith, where faith is something that's not seen, right, where we believe something and hope for something not seen. But at the same time, our faith is not blind. And our faith can and is strengthened by seeing good proofs and evidences for the truths that we believe. And we can say, yes, our faith is real. God is real. The God we serve is real. The hope that we have provided in scripture from God is real. And that strengthens us and encourages us to keep going in our faith, right? And then to go and proclaim that same faith to other people. And then lastly, we are living in the golden age of apologetics. And what I mean by that, number one, is that in the West, as Christians, we are facing more challenges than we ever have to Christianity. More and more people are either just defecting from the faith or more and more people are just atheists and, and are antagonistic to Christian, Christianity, more so than it ever has been in the West. And so this is a challenge for us, right? To, to step up and to answer this call, answer this challenge. And second, we're in the golden age of apologetics because of the resources that we have. 
We have an embarrassment of resources when it comes to defending our faith. And we think of evidence for, evidences for our faith. Just thinking about technology, number one, and then also just publication and printing and all of these things where we have access at the click of a button to resources where people have spent their entire lives answering certain objections and questions. And so people in church history didn't have this type of access. And so that's where we're in the golden age of apologetics. Okay, so just some simple goals for tonight. The first goal is to inform you. So I want to inform you by answering the question, what is apologetics? Because some of you may not know what apologetics is. And also, why do we do apologetics? I kind of answered that. Number two, to inform you, I want to inform you on what are the various approaches to defending our faith and which one do I think is the best according to scripture? And then the second goal I have is to equip you. So what are the common objections to Christianity and how can we answer those objections? And also, if I'm going too fast, just raise your hand, ask a question, um, and we'll see yeah, if I could, if I could answer. Uh, my computer is frozen. Let me see. Um, okay. Yeah, my computer's completely frozen. But uh, let me see if I can pull it up on my phone. Okay. So the definition of apologetics. So I kind of mentioned. Apologetics is a reasonable defense of the Christian faith. In other words, apologetics is this branch of Christianity, this branch of Christian theology, which seeks to provide rational justification for the truth claims of Christianity. And so most people get this definition and this idea from 1 Peter 3.15, which I mentioned, where Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense, an apologia, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So you can see I've bolded and underlined that word for defense, right? In the Greek, it's apologia, so apologetics, right? And so this word, it can be used in other contexts in the New Testament and Greek literature uh, for making a literal defense for yourself in a courtroom, right, setting, or it could be like Paul when he defends himself before himself before the Jews, when they charge him for blasphemy for preaching the gospel. We see it in Philippians 1, where Paul speaks of the defense of the gospel. And so a, a couple things with, with 1 Peter 3.15 is we see a command, right? We see a command where Peter is telling Christians, as we know, we're going through 1 Peter as a church, right? We know that these are Christians who are being persecuted, and Peter tells them to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and be ready to make a defense when someone asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So he's, this isn't an option, right, for Peter. He's saying you need to be ready to give a defense to everyone. And then he says that we are to do apologetics in a certain way, right? He, he says on the outset of our journey into apologetics, right, evangelism, he says we don't run away, but also when we engage people, we do it in a certain way. We do it in a way that's gentle, right, and with reverence toward God. And so there's a certain way that we go about, we're not here to just win arguments. We don't want to just win arguments and beat people, right? And do it for our own pride. But we always want to win people to Christ. And so that is the point. And especially in the context of 1 Peter, right? He gives the example of Christ who never reviles when he's reviled. He always does it, or he, he lived in such a way where he lived with gentleness. Okay, so we're gonna look at the 
different approaches of apologetics. I had like four of them. There's a book that I had to read for, for my class in seminary where there's like literally like 20 different approaches that you can take. But these are going to be kind of the main two approaches that most people will take or just maybe they might not know it or they might, but these are usually going to, they're usually going to fall into these two main categories. And so they're going to be different in their emphasis. So I want to kind of say that in that from the outset that one approach is going to be more focused on deductive reasoning. Um, and another approach is going to be focused on inductive reasoning. So basically deductive reasoning, reasoning starting kind of from the top down, accepting certain truths or premises and having the acceptance of those truths kind of frame the way you understand the particulars of something. And that'll kind of hopefully make sense as I go through it. Whereas classical apologetics is going to be more from the ground up where we're looking at individual evidences and pieces of evidence and trying to interpret those and kind of build a case for an argument to get to the final goal or conclusion that Christianity is true, God exists, all of those things. Okay, so the first approach is going to be presuppositionalism, presuppositionalism. And so the major adherents, you might not care, just a bunch of old dudes. Um, so Cornelius Van Til is going to be known as the father of presuppositionalism. Cornelius Van Til, he, he lived like 1920s, right? 1930s, 40s, I'm asking Keith, but, um, but basically he, he got his PhD from Princeton, uh, as THM from, from Princeton. This is before Princeton uh, became liberal. Um, they, were, they were still conservative Presbyterian at that time. And then the liberalist fundamentalist controversies happen. Van Til leaves and he helps start Westminster Theological Seminary with J. Gresham Mason and I think B.B. Warfield was there too. And then we have Greg Bonson, who is basically, he, he studied under Van Til and he, uh, he went to Westminster Seminary and he got his PhD in philosophy from USC actually, and he studied epistemology. So epistemology being this field of philosophy, which deals with how do we know what we know? It's the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? And so, so that's Bonson, and he's one of the very, or one of the more famous, stronger presuppositionalists. And then we have John Frame. John Frame, he teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary, I believe, and he's written some influential theological works. Um, John Frame is great. Okay, so now getting into what presuppositionalists believe and what this approach believes. And you can kind of think through these two and think, oh, okay, like, is this the approach I want to take? And we'll kind of look at the two different approaches and see and kind of evaluate and I'll kind of hopefully show which, which one I think is better, which ones are the strengths and weaknesses of each. Okay, so presuppositionalism, the main proposition is that reasoning does not take place in a vacuum. In other words, a person's reasoning, the way they think, it's going to be colored by things that they already assume. And this, what, this will determine their knowledge about the world and how they arrive to certain conclusions. Okay, that might be a lot, but I'll hopefully explain. So they'll say that facts are not held objectively, but facts are interpreted by people. There are no such things as brute just objective facts. So some of the main characteristics is that presuppositionalism is going to take seriously the corruption that sin has on human reasoning and the inability of an unregenerate, unsaved person to comprehend certain spiritual realities. Okay, so this also points out the inability for humans to reason properly, properly from or apart from a biblical worldview. 
So essentially, humans are not neutral agents out to discover God unimpeded with no bias, right? Rather, human beings are sinful who are limited because they suppress the truth of the knowledge about God, right? And this comes from Romans 1, 18 to 32, right? Where Paul describes human beings who have turned away from God. The result is that they have depraved minds. They have darkened hearts. They are foolish in their thinking, right? Paul couldn't be any more clear about the human condition that even feeds into our reasoning, right? And I'm not saying, it might seem like I hold this view and same thing with the other one, but I'm trying to just present a proje- uh, objective kind of, you know, representation of, of the views. So the presuppositionalist asserts that the authority of the Bible should be the assumed starting point in any apologetic discourse that we have with unbelievers. So Van Til, he, he says this, this is from Van Til himself. The only proof of the Christian position is that unless its truth is presupposed, there is no possibility of proving anything at all. So the goal then of this apologetic approach is to undermine the non-Christian's worldview and doing that by demonstrating that without a Christian God or without the Christian God and believing in the Christian God and what the Bible says about the world and about reality, a person cannot consistently claim any sort of meaning, any sort of truth, any sort of logic. And to the extent that they do use such things, like claim facts or reasoning, logic, meaning in things, they're only borrowing capital from Christianity. They're borrowing capital and operating within Christianity's worldview. Okay, so by questioning an unbeliever's presuppositions and requiring them to justify their rationality, the apologist who who takes this approach reduces the opposition to absurdity, right? Because once the unbeliever realizes that their current worldview cannot provide sufficient justification for anything, right? Even their existence, Christianity is then shown to be the only viable, plausible worldview that makes sense of the world. And so the unbeliever's problem, they would say, is not knowledge, right? You can know two plus two equals four, right? They would admit that and say that. But the problem is submission to God and his truth, where you can't properly understand and interpret facts as they're meant to be understood and interpreted unless you first presuppose and assume that God exists, that he created the world, he orders things, and having the right worldview. Okay, so some of the other characteristics is that most presuppositionalists will not engage with certain arguments, in certain arguments with unbelievers. And that is because the fact that an unbeliever argues with you about the existence of God, for example, they would say demonstrates that this person assumes God exists. Right, so they would say an unbeliever cannot argue with you about God unless God is real, right? And, and only if God is real can you even be making arguments that you could even be thinking rationally. So even if you're not acknowledging God's existence, by the very fact that you're speaking right now and you're trying to reason and argue and make interpretations about God's world, it betrays that you believe God is real or that God is real whether you recognize it or not. You're suppressing that truth in your own unrighteousness. So I asked Keith to, if I could have permission to share this. I didn't tell him what I was going to share, but 
So Keith, one time, I mean, this is like maybe like a couple months ago, I was talking about like how like someone came up to me and tried to evangelize to me and we were exchanging stories of how that's happened to us. And he said when he was at Berkeley, I think, uh, someone came up to him and, and asked him, do you believe in God? And Keith's response was the most presuppositionalist answer I've ever heard, where he said, well, God exists whether, I, whether or not I believe in him, right? That, that's a presuppositionalist response where if he were talking to an unbeliever, right, it would be, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. The fact is God exists whether you want to believe it or not, right? And Keith is a presuppositionalist and people know this, so I'm not like embarrassing him. Hopefully not, but... Yeah, and there was like a debate that I was watching one time, just like a short clip where it was a presuppositionalist and an atheist. And in the debates, anytime like the atheist would say something, try to present arguments, whatever, God this, God that, what about this? The presuppositionalist guy would kind of just get up and walk away and be like, oh, so you assume God exists then. And like, that was like his entire argument. And like, it was, it's like kind of annoying, even as a Christian, where like, he's just not engaging him. He's just like, oh, so God exists. And he just like, you know, and it's just like, it's, it's kind of funny. Like, yeah, yeah, Keith. I'm not that kind of <laughs> So yes, I, I don't want to, I want to say there are variations within each camp, right? Where even I think there are strong points to presuppositionalism, but I think you can have a mixed approach. And you just always want to be careful of the two extremes. And I'll, and I'll get to that. So some people might say that the weaknesses of presuppositionalism are that they use circular argumentation, right? Why should I believe the Bible? Well, because the Bible is God's word and the Bible says so, right? Well, show me proof of that. Well, it says it right here in the Bible, right? Some people could say that's, that's how it comes off, right? It can be logically unsatisfying to encounter someone like this if you're a non-Christian. You're a non-Christian. And some people would say it amounts to fideism, basically just, just believism, right? Oh, you just need to believe. Just stop asking questions. Just believe, right? So that's how it can be somewhat unsatisfying. Also, a big thing is that I think scripture uses inductive reasoning and evidence in support of our faith. For example, I'm going to give a bunch of examples. So from the Old Testament, we have Moses, right? So Moses, God gets his attention with a bush that is on fire, but that does not burn up, right? This is a supernatural act. And God is showing Moses that I'm God. I'm choosing you to be a prophet for my people, Israel. And he's showing Moses evidence that he is God and that Moses needs to follow him. And then God gives Moses and the people several miraculous signs to show them that Moses is his prophet and that his people should follow and listen to Moses because Moses comes and he speaks on behalf of God and says, hey, God told me this. And people are like, well, why should I believe you? And then God says, well, I'm going to make your staff turn into a snake when you throw it on the ground. And then when you pick it up, it'll turn back into a rod. Right. And then, of course, God does a bunch of other things. For example, in the plagues where he shows that he is the God above all of the gods, especially the Egyptian gods. And he's showing, one, the Egyptians, but also his people, Israel, that he is God. He is the only God. They must follow him and believe in him. And these are the stories, right, that they tell their kids and their grandkids all the way down where it's traditions, where it's like, this is the God we serve. And he did all these wonderful things, so we must follow and serve him. Okay, and then we have the prophets. So the prophets, they predicted events and they performed miracles to prove Yahweh is the one true God. We have Elijah who declares a drought in 1 Kings 17.1, and it happens. And God speaks through Isaiah, we see to predict the future and to challenge false gods in Isaiah 44.7, where God shows that his people to his people that you shouldn't follow any of the other gods, especially when you go into exile. 
because I'm the only God who can tell the future. Okay? Not going to read all this, but... So, Elijah, when he raises the widow's son, she's not, she's not an Israelite. She's a Syrophoenician woman. She doesn't believe in Yahweh. But God declares the famine and the drought. People are dying. But Elijah, he comes, and God provides for him miraculously through some birds, and he gives him some water. And he also raises the widow's son from the dead to show that God is the one who is king and creator against Baal, who, who the nation of Israel was turning to worship. And God showing, no, I am the one true God who is creator of all these things, master over all these things. And so the woman, in response, after her, after her son is raised from the dead, she says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And then we see it with the prophets of Baal. Elijah has a showdown with them. Um, sorry, I don't have enough time to read all that. But to show Israel that God is the one who consumes the sacrifice, Baal doesn't consume the sacrifice in the showdown, right? And so God miraculously consumes the sacrifice to show the people that he is God and that the other gods are not. Okay, and then in the New Testament, we have inductive evidence from the gospel writers demonstrating that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. We see Paul in the synagogues where it says that he would go and he would reason with people from the scriptures, right? He's not just going to the Jews and saying, nope, don't talk to me, just believe. Jesus is the Messiah, that's it. No, he goes and he shows them, guys, look at the evidence in the Old Testament. Look, and he starts reasoning with them through the scriptures to show them evidence that Jesus is the Christ, okay? Then it says some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas. And then, of course, he goes to the Areopagus in Athens and he interacts with Gentiles, Greeks, un, you know, unbelievers, and he starts making arguments for the resurrection and all this stuff. Okay, and then the apostles perform miracles to validate their message as evidence. And then Jesus, he says, you know, with his miracles, right, he expected people to believe based on the evidence of his miracles. If I do the works of my father, do not believe me, but if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and continue knowing that the father is in me and I am the father. And then he uses logic and reasoning to defend himself and the miracles he's performing. He uses a move in logic called reductio ad certum. When they say that you're casting out demons by the power of Satan, and he says, how can a kingdom be divided against itself? It's not going to stand. And so he's using this move in logic to show the absurdity of the objection that they're making. So all, all that goes to show is that I think the presuppositionalist approach can fall short because there are clear instances in scripture where people are confronting and engaging and reasoning and showing evidence with unbelievers to persuade them to believe. And God uses it even with his own people. Okay, so now moving on to kind of the inductive, more inductive uh, approach to things. And so this is going to be classical apologetics, classical apologetics. And does anybody know some of these guys? Raise your hand. No? Does anyone know William Lane Craig? Am I the only one who Man. Yeah, he was your professor. So yeah, William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, both formerly, I think J.P. Moreland, I don't know if he's still there, but they were at Biola for the longest time. And I'll give you some resources where there's some pretty epic debates where you just go on YouTube and search William Lane Craig, especially where he had a debate with Christopher Hitchens and also uh, Sam Harris, who are kind of two of the more famous kind of atheists, at least within like the past, like, you know, 20 years or so. And so he's probably going to be 
more of the most well-known um, Christian apologists. But basically, classical apologetics, the approach is going to be to first prove theism, so to prove that God exists. And then after that, after you prove God exists, then you prove Christianity is real and viable. Okay? So again, the approach is going to be uh, inductive. Okay? Uh, yeah, so another person is R.C. Sproul, uh, who some of you might know. Um, Norman Geisler as well. Okay, so the way that the classical apologist tries to prove theism is by using four common arguments to proving the existence of God. So the first is going to be the cosmological argument. The second is going to be the ontological argument by St. Anselm. The third is going to be the teleological argument. And the fourth is going to be the moral argument. And we'll go through at least three of these uh, when, yeah, we talk about trying to prove the existence of God. So don't worry if you, yeah, don't get those right now because we'll, I'll talk about them. Okay, so then they try to prove Christianity after they've proved to someone, okay, you believe God exists. Okay, let's start working on proving to you Christianity is real. So they'll look at historical evidence. So historical evidence for miracles, at least in uh, different sources, either biblical or extra biblical. They'll look at prophecy in scripture that, is, um, that comes into fruition. They'll look at the reliability of the Bible. They look at archaeological evidence, um, including extra-biblical sources from ancient texts that they find, for example, that talk about Jesus, um, which you see in the rabbis, and some of the things that Jesus did, or in Josephus, who is a, well, he's Jewish, but he kind of turned to the Roman side, and he wrote uh, works, or, or sorry, historical works uh, around the first century uh, AD. And then there's uh, archaeological evidence that they'll point to uh, sites, certain sites, and we'll talk about those too. So don't worry if you don't, don't get it now. Okay, so how should we evaluate both of these views? How should we think about them? Which view should I take when I'm interacting with an unbeliever and they're bringing up all these objections to Christianity? How should we respond? Which approach should we take? So I think on the one hand, scripture clearly demonstrates that Jesus, Paul, the prophets, God himself used evidence, proofs, right, logic, argumentation to demonstrate the existence of God and that Christianity is real. And also, right, we know, at least we confess, that God is a God of truth. He's a God of non-contradiction, a God of reason who gives us our, our reason and ability to, um, to have reason. Okay, but on the other hand, we also want to acknowledge that no matter how much evidence we provide, no matter how good our arguments might be, no matter how smart we think we are, people will believe what they want to believe, right? And I'll prove it to you in just a second. There will always be a moral and spiritual element that requires a new heart, right? For God to open people's eyes, to grant them faith, to raise people from the dead, right, Paul? Ephesians 2, 1, right? We are dead in our transgressions and sins. Can you make yourself alive? No, you can't. Can anyone else? No, only God can give life and give you the new heart that you need, the heart of flesh. And even William Lane Craig, I mentioned him, he's very heavy on evidence, right? Even he has acknowledged, I've seen it in interviews that he's had, that there's always a heart issue, right? There's always a heart issue. No one denies that, okay? 
but to what extent, of course, he's going to differ, right? How serious is the heart issue and how has human, re- human reasoning been corrupted? How much where people can't, we can't give them evidence or, or whatever, right? Okay, so some scriptural examples, right? The nation of Israel. They saw the parting of the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, if you want to be technical. They saw the parting of the sea, right? They saw manna coming from heaven, right? And what does it say? The first generation died because they didn't believe, right? They were disobedient to God, even after seeing all that. The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, right? They see Jesus's miracles right before their eyes and they still refuse to believe. If you think of uh, Luke 16 and uh, the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man, he's in hell and he's in torment and he, rec- or he realizes, right, that the chasm between him and uh, Lazarus, who is in heaven, it can't be uh, bridged. He can't go. So he says, well, at least tell an angel to, or I forget what he says, uh, like, or yeah, tell an angel, right? Yeah, to warn his family, right? And, and what, is, what is the response? He says, well, even if someone rose from the dead and told your family, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make a difference. Right? They have Moses and the prophets, and they, and they don't believe. That's enough, right? So there is always the heart issue. There's always the heart issue. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where Paul says that Satan, the ruler of this world, has blinded people's minds. Right? There's a veil that is over their eyes that prevents them from seeing. Right? And so we need Christ to shine into their hearts so they would believe. Okay, so there's always going to be ulterior motives. Right? People love their sin. People want to justify it. Right? The Jewish leaders wanted to preserve their power. And that's not always the case, right? We want to be careful of just saying, oh, this person is just holding on to sin. They just love sin. They're in rebellion. I think you can genuinely ask questions as an unbeliever and as a believer, curious questions about certain things with the right heart attitude. And that's okay to ask those questions. But again, we always want to understand that there is always a heart issue. Okay. So now kind of getting to some common objections and responses. And as I mentioned, there are four that I want to address. And the first one is going to be the existence of God. The second is going to be the reliability of the Bible. The third is going to be the resurrection. And the fourth is the problem of evil and suffering. Okay. So the first is the existence of God. So as I mentioned for the theist, or or sorry, the classical apologist, they're going to try to prove theism first and they do it by using they use the ontological argument but i don't like it um but there's the cosmological argument the teleological argument and the moral argument okay we're gonna fly through these and i want to get to explain all of them in detail but hopefully we kind of just get the gist and i'll give you resources after where you can dive deeper um if you want to so the cosmological argument is basically the argument from causality In other words, this argument reasons from the existence of the universe that there is a creator, right? There has to be some unmoved mover who creates that brings everything to existence. And that's because you cannot get everything from nothing, right? You can't have spontaneous life. You can't have, I don't know, just things, material appearing out of nowhere. Everything that begins to exist has to have a cause of existence. And because the universe began to exist there, therefore it has a cause of existence. And I mean, even if you just think about this, like if you try to trace, I don't know, everything here now, where did I come from? My parents, where did they come from? Their parents, blah, blah, blah. And you go all the way back. Even if you believe evolution and all that stuff, 
all that garbage. And if you go all the way back to, you know, whatever, primordial soup, and then you go to the Big Bang, what was before that? And then what was before that? And then what was before that? And then, right? So you just go infinitely back to there has to be someone, something that creates, that had to be eternally existing to act and to move and to kind of, kind of kickstart everything. So that's kind of the basic of, basics of the cosmological argument. Okay. And then there's the teleological argument. So the word teleology comes from the Greek word telos, meaning end or goal. And basically, this is the argument from design. The argument from design. And so probably the most common argument you might hear is the watchmaker argument or the fine-tuning argument, where if you were to walk on a beach and you find a watch in the sand, you pick it up, no one in their right mind would say that this watch just happened to come together in all of its intricate parts parts with no designer, no creator, nothing, and that it just happened to form from chaos and randomness, right? And so I'm not a scientist. I was a Bible major, um, so that kind of excuses me from any questions, but um, <laughs> that's kind of why I just, yeah, but, but I, I think, yeah, there is, like, just probability-wise, I've read some things where the probability of the earth just happening and existing and getting to where we are now, based on how scientists describe it, the chances of that are astronomical, right? It's, it's, it's essentially impossible for it to happen just by chance or just from chaos, right? And so that's going to be the argument, the teleological argument, where you you look at biology and DNA, the complexity of life, all of these different things, and how do you explain those things? And just to say that it happened out of chaos or chance, whatever it is, um, it's fairly unlikely. Okay. And then uh, the next one is going to be the moral argument. The moral argument. So the argument's going to be that there is objective morality, right? Belief in God, and belief in God provides a better explanation of this than other alternatives. So basically any claim to any moral standard by someone who doesn't believe in God should require us or should prompt us to ask, well, where do you get that standard then? Where does that standard of morality come from then? Because it, it just becomes arbitrary, right? Where you can just move the goalposts wherever you want, where you can be Nazi Germany justifying anything you want, right? Um, Josh Kira, one time, Pastor Kim's brother, he's, he's, an apolo- or he's philosophy apologetics. And he said, yeah, like for this argument or you know, something similar to this, like, you know, if we're looking from a utilitarian standpoint, like just human flourishing, why don't we just take all the people with all the diseases and all the bad stuff and we just put them on an island and just let them die, right? Like why, why is it, why, like where's your standard to stop that, right? And, and you could just change it however you want, right? And so, but even though the standards will differ between people, the fact is that people will have a standard regardless, right? And so you have to ask, where does that even come from, the sense of moral oughtness, right? Right and wrong. Where does that even come from? And so C.S. Lewis, he's going to be a big proponent of this in mere Christianity. Uh, maybe some of you have read mere Christianity. A lot of people have come to faith from mere Christianity. Um, and so I'd highly recommend it. But another one is John Calvin. He has uh, this term or this phrase, sensus divinitatis, uh, where there's this sense of the divine in every human person. And we see this in, for example... Psalm 19, 1 to 3. It's also in Romans 1. 
If you want to turn there, you can. I'll read it. So in Psalm 19, um, 1 to 3, Psalm of David, the hem, or sorry, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day, he pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. So even though God is not speaking from heaven, you could look at his creation, you can look up in the heavens and you could have a sense that, oh, there's something bigger than me. There's something out there. There's a sense of the divine creator. And then Paul in Romans 1, verse 18 He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Well, how'd he do it? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, the divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made through creation so that they are without excuse, right? Um, so he says people are without excuse. They see and know that God exists by just looking at creation. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So they turn away from God, even though they know he exists. And then in Romans 2, this is kind of getting to the moral argument. Um, Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, so he's speaking of non-Jews at that time, who didn't have the Torah, who didn't have the books of Moses, right, didn't have the law or the prophets, he says, Even they do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law, the Torah, are a law to themselves. Do you get that? They're a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law, written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively, or sorry, alternately accusing or else defending them. So people know God exists from creation and people have a knowledge and a sense of God written very just within them, right? And even having the moral law written on their hearts, they know from right and wrong, right? It's on their conscience, Paul says. Okay. Okay, we good on that? All right, cool. Flying through here. Okay, so now moving on to the reliability of the Bible. So this is going to deal with uh, textual criticism. And so textual criticism, it's a fancy term basically for just looking at a bunch of ancient manuscripts and comparing them to see how we can get to the original wording um, from the original authors who wrote the work, right? This doesn't just apply to, um, to the Bible, but it applies also to other ancient works. Uh, just comparing manuscripts, right, and trying to get to the original wording um, from the original author. Okay, so when it comes to the Bible, full disclosure, this isn't a surprise to, like, anyone. This is common knowledge. We don't have the originals. We don't have the originals. But we have 5,600 Greek manuscripts, and I'll explain the significance of those soon. There are 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and there are nearly 1 million quotations from the church fathers. And I'll explain the significance of that. So the church fathers, they're gonna be guys who are living within the first 400 years of church history, so after Jesus' death. And they're writing a bunch of theological works, right? Commentaries, 
uh, on Scripture, or sorry, yeah, and they include quotations from Scripture, okay? And we find a lot of the New Testament, in fact, all of the New Testament, essentially within the church fathers. And so, if all of the other sources for our knowledge, just to set the church fathers, all their quotations in context, if all of our resources or sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, the, patri- the patristic quotations would be sufficient alone to recreate essentially the entire New Testament. And that's within the first 400 years, okay, of their writing. We also have a dozen manuscripts from the second century, so within the first 200 years of church history. We have 64 manuscripts from the third century. We have 48 manuscripts from the fourth century. And so that's a total of 124 manuscripts within 300 years of the New Testament's composition, okay? And most are fragmentary, right? They're not very big and they don't have the complete Bible, but collectively the entire New Testament is found in them multiple times. And why is this important? That might not seem reassuring. But the question, just for perspective, is how do the average classical authors, especially in Greece and Rome, match up? So Plato, Homer, Aristotle, you guys all read the Odyssey, right? If you're good students in high school, all that, right? I remember reading it. If we're comparing them and the same duration of time that elapses after composition, so 300 years after their writing, the average classical author has zero. We have zero manuscripts for the average classical author within the first 300 years of their writing. The average ancient Greek writer has less than 20 copies still in existence, and that's spanning thousands of years. The Iliad, so Homer's Iliad, is going to come the closest with over 600 copies. It's going to come closest to the New Testament. But again, we have 5,600 manuscripts for the New Testament just in Greek. Right? So skeptics will say right, the vast majority of manuscripts Right? They come from over 800 years after their composition. But what they don't tell you is that these later manuscripts add only 2% to the text, 2% material to the entire text. And many copies of the ancient text, they don't appear until much later, right? up to 1,800 years after they're written. And then the last bullet, there are three times more New Testament manuscripts within the first 200 years of their writing than the average Greco-Roman author has in 2,000 years, okay? And so the main point is, are skeptics really willing to apply the same skepticism that they do to the New Testament to the rest of Greco-Roman literature? And if that's the case, we might as well kiss goodbye. Pretty much all the history books we know or have that talk about the Caesars, Alexander the Great, Plato, Rome itself, modern democracy, medical ethics, all that. Okay. So with textual criticism, I think I mentioned there are variants within manuscripts, right? And so there are differences, and we have to think about how do we deal with these differences when we look at the ancient manuscripts, especially when we compare an older manuscript to a younger manuscript. What do we do with additions? Okay, so a textual variant is going to be, just for definition, any place among the manuscripts in which there's a variation in wording, spelling, word order or omission or addition of words. So again, I, I mentioned spelling differences as well. 
So for some reassurance, 99% of the variations are meaningless. They're going to be spelling errors. They're going to be word order. And most of the time when you're reading it, you could tell if there's an addition. And the third point is that they don't affect any essential doctrines that we believe as Christians. Right, and then a lot of the, the differences are going to be swapping, for example, the name of Jesus for Christ, right? Like stuff like that, or forgetting an article. Yeah, for Greek, there are just, you could do so many different things with the article. Like you can take it out, throw it in, you could put it one spot, another spot. And so a lot of the differences are there as well, okay? Um, and the most common, wait, yeah, so word ordering, spe- spelling, those are going to be the most common differences. And then there are texts that are inauthentic, that we all agree on. So, for example, John 8 and the woman caught in adultery, that is not an authentic text. Most people acknowledge that. We have the ending of Mark, which is uh, going to include, like, power over demons. He says, you know, when you go, you're going to, you know, trample or have power over serpents. And, like, you could drink poison and be healthy and all that stuff. And then First John 5, 7, we have a verse on the Trinity that explicitly lays out the Trinity. So there are that. So there are some that we recognize that are going to be more important than others. Um, one textual critic was like making fun of, or not making fun, what kind of, but like because the ending of Mark, some people might take that, and some people have like you know where like they do snake handling and like all that stuff like in churches. Like I mean, not anywhere, hopefully where you guys have been, but um, and so there are some that do have significant implications, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, they don't affect main doctrines, main things that we believe uh, concerning our faith. And then the last thing is, you talk to so many people and they're like, well, it's just a giant game of telephone. How do you know that one text from another, as they were transmitting it, it can be reliable, right? Just like in the game of telephone, where if I tell Thomas a sentence and he tells you and you and you and you, and then it gets all, all the way to the back, it's a completely different sentence. Well, the difference is they're writing things down, right? Uh, if I gave you something to write down, and t- or if I wrote something down and told you to copy it and to pass it around, you have something to look back on and to trace, right, and to check your work. It's completely different than the game of telephone, right? You can't even compare it. But people will say that as like a gotcha, right? Okay, so now continuing with the reliability of the Bible, um, finishing up with prophecy, so, and archaeological findings. So prophecy, I think this is convincing, right, where we have the destruction of Jerusalem uh, prophesied or foretold by Jesus, um, and that happens in AD 70. And then we have the destruction of Tyre in Ezekiel 26. And then, of course, we have the exile and return, which is first talked about in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, and then, of course, in the prophets such as Isaiah. And to get around this, what did the skeptics do? or liberal scholars in Bible depart- or, uh, in religion departments at universities, right? They say, oh, well, because supernatural things aren't real, right? Like prophecy doesn't happen. They had to be later editions, right? There had to be an editor, you know, in the nation of Israel where the priests got together and they, they added the stuff and, you know, yada, yada, yada to, you know, kind of make sense of what happened to them as a nation in exile, uh, stuff like that, right? Okay, and then archaeological findings. So, first, the exist- existence of David. So, this involves the Tel Dan Steel, which is that big old slab of rock right there. So, in 1993, they discovered this slab of rock. Why is it important? Well, until this point, 
liberal scholars, they would say, skeptics would say, that David didn't exist. David didn't exist because there's no proof of him outside of the Bible. And the Bible isn't historically reliable, right? There's a bunch of mistakes in it. David didn't exist, right? They, they invented him, right? And this Davidic dynasty to kind of stake their claim uh, as a nation to rule in Jerusalem and to have this land. And so they're justifying all this stuff by inventing a king, a hero, like kind of like Hercules, right? However, in the 90s, so people were like, yeah, David doesn't exist. In the 90s, archaeologists found a stele, this big old slab of, of rock, which is essentially the stone in the northern part of Israel in Dan, where they were bordering uh, other foreign powers. And written on it is this victory, this guy, this, this foreign king recounting a victory about how he had victory over the house of David. Okay, so the significance of that is we have attestation for the existence of David outside of the Bible. And people didn't know what to do with that, right? The skeptics were like, well, we thought David didn't exist, but now we have proof for him outside of the Bible. And then some other examples, we have the Hittite Empire, which was only known in the Old Testament. So kind of similar thing. People doubted they existed, right? Because it was only in the biblical record. But in 1871, they discovered Hittite monuments at Carchemish, which is in northern Syria. They discover elsewhere 10,000 clay tablets belonging to the Hittites, showing that, oh, these were actually real people. And we see it attested for in the Bible, and the Bible is right. And then finally, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. So until recently, the earliest Old Testament manuscripts that we had were from around 900 AD. Okay, so there's this huge gap between the original writing Uh, about 400 BC to 900 AD, right? So can we trust the text that we have from 900 AD, that it wasn't corrupted, all this stuff. But in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. They were discovered in, so there's these caves in Qumran. It's in the desert just to the west of the Dead Sea. And they found all the books of the Old Testament, minus Esther. And among the books found was Isaiah, Isaiah. And it was dated to 125 BC. And it was compared to the one from 980. So after a thousand years of copying, right? Should be all these mistakes, should be missing a bunch of stuff, but it was nearly identical. And there's only minor insignificant differences like the ones that I mentioned with the New Testament. Spelling, right? Maybe missing a word here and there, but you can put it together very easily, right? You can tell what a person is saying, even if they're missing a few words, misspelled a few words, whatever it might be. This is because the scribes were very meticulous in how they copied, right? You can go to Israel today and, or I mean, you could even go, yeah, you go to Israel today and you could see them writing, right? In the rabbinic schools and you could see how meticulous they are. Okay, and then we have Hezekiah's tunnel. So 2 Kings 2020, it says that, Hezekiah, he's preparing for a siege um, against the Assyrians. And it says, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So it talks about this pool and this tunnel that he, the tunnel he carves out to allow water to come into the city. So it's water being brought outside of the city, outside of the city walls to come into the city so they could have water for a siege. This was not discovered People didn't know about it for a really long time until the 1800s where they discovered Hezekiah's tunnel. And there's a picture. I'm not in it, but those are my friends when I was in Israel. And Keith has been, 
Did you go to the Hezekiah's tunnel? Yeah, Keith's been there too. And it's like the 1,700 meter or foot um, tunnel that goes all the way from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam. And so the Bible is right again. Okay. Uh, should I do this? Um, we're just going to go for it. Okay, so another thing is like people might look at the Bible and say there's a bunch of contradictions in it, and they might point to certain things. And so maybe this might come up during Christmas, and you could wow all your friends, right, uh, when Christmas comes around. Did you know that uh, the curse of Jeconiah? So the curse of Jeconiah. So Jeconiah, he's a terrible king. He's trash. Um, so are, like, all the kings. Um, but the important thing is that he's the king of Judah when the deportation happens, the deportation of Babylon. And he's important because he's listed in Jesus' genealogy through Joseph's family line. And because he was so bad, God cursed him. And the curse of Jeconiah is found in Jeremiah 22. And so first, God likens Jeconiah to a signet, signet ring on God's hand. A ring that God says he will pull off and cast off. So Jeconiah is a ring and God says, I'm going to cast you off. And then God pronounces a curse on him. And this is what he says. This is what God says about Jeconiah. So he's direct descendant of David, of the Davidic line. And God says, record this man as if childless because he's evil. A man who will not prosper in his lifetime for none of his offspring will prosper. And then this is the key thing. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. That's kind of a problem if you look at Jesus' genealogy and Jeconiah is his ancestor and he descends from him and God curses Jeconiah saying that he won't have a king or a son that sits on the throne of David. So right, it seems to invalidate Jesus' right to the throne of David. Okay, so what do we do? So there are three possible solutions to this difficulty and you don't have to remember them, right? The point is that when someone, whoever, or maybe even yourself, you're struggling, you're like, what do I do with this? The point is that we have answers, right? We just need to stop and think, ask people, whatever, right? People have thought about this and there are ways to come up with solutions. So there are three solutions, possibly, right? Or three possible solutions. First, the offspring of Jeconiah mentioned in the curse, it could be a limited reference to the king's own children, right? His immediate offspring, not his descendants after them, right? On a related note, the phrase... So it says in his lifetime, right? It could apply to the entire verse. So essentially the curse could only be in force while the king lived, right? That's an option. And that's exactly what happened because Jeconiah, he was not successful as a king, right? He reigned for three months and then he's taken to Babylon in captivity with Nebuchadnezzar's forces. None of his sons, yet seven of them, sat on the throne of David. So you could say that it was fulfilled right there. None of them reigned over Judah, and so it ends right there. A second solution concerns the virgin birth. So Jesus, he only had one human parent, right? Mary, biologically. His mother was also from David's line, but not through Jeconiah. Okay? And so the argument would be Joseph then was Jesus's legal father, not his biological father, his biological seed, right? So Jesus was of royal blood through Mary. And so the curse of Jeconiah stops with Joseph. Um, as the direct physical seed or descendant of Jeconiah. So it's not passed on to Jesus. Okay, and then I think this one might be the most convincing. So the third solution is the reversal of the curse through Zerubbabel. So this is hinted in Haggai. 
So Haggai, he tells Zerubbabel, who is Jeconiah's grandson, after they return from captivity uh, back to the land, Zerubbabel, he's governor, and he's a direct descendant of Jeconiah, the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. He's blessed by God as the governor of Judea, and he prospered in that role as ruler when they returned. And then it says the signet ring, so this imagery of Jeconiah's curse, right? It's repeated in Zerubbabel's blessing, which must be more than coincidence, right? And so several rabbinic sources teach that Jeconiah repented in Babylon, right? And that God forgave him, God lifts the curse. And we see the reversal of this because God calls Zerubbabel, signet ring, and he blesses him. Whereas Jeconiah was a signet ring, thrown off and cursed. So it's reversed possibly in Zerubbabel. Okay, we have two more. Hopefully, I'm going to jam through this, hopefully. Okay, so the resurrection. The resurrection. So people obviously say the resurrection didn't happen. So what are some arguments or the most common arguments that that people provide? So first, people will say Joseph of Arimathea. So he, in the Gospels, Gospel of John, is identified as a member of the council of the Sanhedrin. The council, which is made up of the Jewish leaders that condemned Jesus to death, right? And what does he do? He goes to Pilate and asks if he can take Jesus's body and bury it in his own tomb. And the significance of that is Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, a powerful man, would have been known to people, much like a government official, right, of our day, and would have been known where his tomb was. Right? And it's also interesting that the person who buries Jesus is not his family in the story, right? It's not his family, it's not a member, or it's not his disciples, but it's a member of his own enemies. And then second, the empty tomb. So the Jewish leaders, right, they says they paid the soldiers to say that the body was stolen, which means, one, that they admit that the tomb was at least empty, right? I mean, they would say, yeah, the disciples stole it, but at least we can be like, okay, the tomb was at least empty, right? Also, how could the disciples have gotten past the royal guards if that were true that they did, or the Roman guards, if that were true that they did steal the body? Then the fact that the gospel recounts the discovery of the empty tomb made by women. And the significance of that is that at the time, the status of women was second class, right? Um, They were basically second-class citizens. They weren't credible. In other words, if you were inventing the story of the resurrection and these apostles and disciples, they're living during this time, they're still alive, and they're inventing the story, why would you invent the story and make the credibility on women, right? You wouldn't use at least what people would think hysterical women as the first eyewitnesses who reported the resurrection Um, because people would just laugh it off at that time. Um, why should we believe this account? So they say that, even though it's a weak argument at that time, right? because people wouldn't believe that. But they'd be like, no, that's dumb. Why would we believe that? Because, yeah, women are hysterical. But they still use it because, and the reason is because it was true, right? because that's what really happened. Okay. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he describes Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to the apostles and then to himself. And then the important thing is that he mentions 500 people who saw Jesus alive. And the significance of this is Paul, he's writing this letter. He's still alive. And most of these people, we're assuming, are still alive. So people could have asked them about this, right? 
whoever wanted to could go and ask them about this. And these are direct witnesses of this, multiple witnesses. Okay, and then many people will point to the fact that the disciples who were once scared, right, of Jesus, right, during the crucifixion, they scatter, they run away. But then this huge change happens where they become bold. They're even willing to die and be tortured and to suffer for this, right? In other words, right, they're first worried that they're mistaken, that they believed in a false Messiah, right? However, they must have seen him, right, risen to change. And we think of Paul as well, right? What Paul was doing to go from such a radical change of killing Christians, right, to willing to risk his life as being a Christian, right? Um, And if there wasn't a resurrection, we can't see how this could be possible, right? And there were failed messiahs in the past, right, where people, after that, they're like, okay, he's not the messiah, like, we're done, right? He was a false messiah. So why would the disciples, if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, why would they still continue with it, right, and be willing to go to the ends of the earth, willing to die, all this stuff, okay? Okay, last one, Um, the problem of evil and suffering. So I think this is a big one for, yeah, unbelievers, right, because a lot of people will argue just from emotions and experience, and it's, it's understandable. And, and even for us, right, we might struggle with this. We obviously think of Job, uh, for example, right? So the problem of evil and suffering is going to be this. This is the, the problem that is presented to Christians. And there's three premises and then a conclusion. The first premise is God is omnibenevolent. God is all good. The second premise is that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. The third premise is evil and suffering exist. So the conclusion by the objector is that either God is not good slash loving, in other words, he's evil, or he's not all-powerful. And so basically what they're saying is, well, if God is all good, he wants to stop evil, but since there's evil, then he must not be all-powerful. He must not be powerful enough to stop evil. Or they might say, yeah, God is all-powerful, but there's still evil, so he must be evil, or he must not be all good, because he has the power to stop it, but he doesn't. So it seems like there's a contradiction there, right? Okay, so I did a nightlight on this where, yeah, like, it took like an hour and a half, but I'm just gonna, because I went through a bunch of different views, and yeah, you could do a semester on this too, but uh, this is the view I think is the strongest, which is the greater good theodicy. And the greater good theodicy, so theodicy meaning uh, theos and dikos, so God and justice or justifying God, right? Those two Greek words. Um, It's going to say that God has good purposes for evil in the world. That's essentially what it's going to say. Where some good purposes for evil are knowable and some are not. Yet, the hiddenness of the good purposes for those evil things does not prove God's non-existence um, should be God's, or uh, the non-existence of the good purposes. Okay? So just because we can't come up with a good reason why God would allow these evil things doesn't mean God doesn't have a good purpose for them, and I'll tell that out. Okay. So a response. A response. In 1974, Alvin Plantinga, he was a philosopher and a former professor at Notre Dame, uh, he addressed the logical problem of evil. This is, it's technically called the logical problem of evil that atheists pose to Christians. And he addresses the problem by pointing out that some of the premises in the argument 
are faulty, and they have underlying assumptions that should undermine them. So in the first premise, which says that God is omnipotent, that God is all-powerful, we would say, yeah, great job, atheists. Yes, we agree. God is all-powerful. Plantinga notes that the underlying assumption is that an all-powerful God can prevent evil, and we would agree with that. However, in the second premise, which says that God is all good, which we as Christians would agree with too, he notes that there's an underlying assumption in that premise presented by the atheist. And that underlying assumption is that an all good, an all loving God wants to prevent evil. And that's where we would disagree. And let me explain. Um, Because it is impossible for them to prove, if you ask them to prove that God, um, that God wants to prevent evil, that God has no good purposes for evil. If you ask them to prove that, they can't prove that. You can't prove that God doesn't have some good purpose for evil. And so you put the burden of proof on them. By, yeah, because they say that there's no good reason for evil and suffering, right? Okay, sorry. And then the premise for the third premise says that evil exists, right? Of course, we agree with that, right? Everyone agrees with that. And the underlying assumption, though, is that evil and suffering cannot possibly serve any good purpose. So when they come and present these three premises, there are some faulty underlying assumptions. And again, the assumption for us is that God being all good, all loving, may well have good purposes for permitting evil that we see. Okay, so some examples. First example is a child getting shot, right? Typically, when you take a child to get their shots, they're confused, right? They're thinking, what's going on? Uh, this hurts. You people are evil. Uh, what, where, like, what is, how could this make sense to me? What good purpose can this serve, right? I thought I trusted you people. What's wrong with you? You're sticking this giant needle in me. Um, they don't understand what's going on, right? And even if you tried to tell them, they wouldn't understand. But what's happening? There's a good reason for this. There's a good purpose where the parents are doing it out of love for the child to protect him or her so they don't get sick and die. So the point is, right, there's this great chasm between us, or sorry, between parents and children, right, in understanding, communication even, how much greater and infinite is the chasm in understanding between us and God, right, for his reasonings, his wisdom, and our wisdom as his children, Right, if a young child can't understand certain concepts, right, good purposes for seemingly bad things done by their parents, like getting a shot, then what makes us think that we would understand the mind and good reasoning of an infinite God when he brings pain and suffering in our lives? In other words, you know, we will have to remember that we're still children, right? We're still children and limited in our knowledge and our understanding. So it shows this example, I think, Just because we don't understand something does not necessarily mean that there is no good reason or purpose behind it, especially if we believe God is the God of the universe and controlling things. Okay, and then another example we see is from Scripture, uh, the man born blind in John 9, right? Again, the disciples, right, they thought that uh, he might have been born blind because, right, he sinned or his parents sinned. and so they're operating with this kind of retribution theology of understanding, understanding evil and suffering. But Jesus tells them 
It was neither this man who sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Right, so God has a purpose for that. Even though we might not understand why would this guy have to go through suffering and all this stuff, um, why would all that happen? But God has a purpose for it. Then finally, the biggest one is going to be Jesus on the cross, right? Acts 2.23, which I think is perhaps the most convincing argument for, for most people where God predetermines and plans Jesus' dying on the cross. And how could this make any sense to anybody? But of course, it is through death that comes life, resurrection, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, and God receives the glory for all of it. Okay. And then lastly, uh, Tim Keller, I think he was really helpful, as you guys know. Tim Keller, he passed away recently. He had pancreatic cancer, and this was from a few years ago when I think uh, he recently had gotten diagnosed. And uh, this is what he says. When we say, I can't believe in a God who would blank, many times, in one way or another, ultimately we are saying we don't really want a God beyond our comprehension. An example of a God beyond our comprehension that many modern people refuse to believe in, many people say, I can't believe God could have reasons for allowing evil and suffering that I can't think of. Therefore, if I can't think of any good reasons, there can't be any, right? And so he's saying that because he's pointing out just kind of the faulty reasoning in that. Just because I can't think of a good reason doesn't mean God doesn't have a good reason, okay? And then lastly, uh, Corey Ten Boom. So if you guys know Corey Ten Boom, um, she, yeah, she basically and her family, uh, during World War II, she hid Jews, and uh, they, would, they would eventually, she'd go, eventually go on and write books reflecting on evil and suffering, the things she saw, and how all these things integrated with her faith. And I, I bring up a quote because, and on that bullet, even if God gave us answers uh, for specific instances of evil and suffering in the world, we most likely would not understand their reasoning due to our finiteness and limitations as creatures. So this is what she says. She's talking about she's joining her father as she's a little girl uh, on the train. She just remembers this as a story when she was growing up. And so seated next to my father in the train compartment, I suddenly asked, Father, what is sex sin? So when she was at school, you know, she's like a young girl. She hears some kids talking about like sex uh, or whatever. And so she was curious and she's a little girl and she asked her dad and she says, She's recounting the story. He turned and looked at me, as he always did when answering a question. But to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifting his traveling case off the floor, and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? He said. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with the watches and the spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. So I think this is a beautiful illustration um, of God withholding certain things from us, certain knowledge, certain answers when it comes to wanting to know about the suffering we see around us in our own lives, right? And withholding that for our own good. 
And first of all, right, even if her dad told her what sexual sin was, she wouldn't know what it was. Or like, you couldn't explain it. She just wouldn't understand. And second, even if he did, that'd be a terrible father, right? <laughs> like, you just, you know, you just wait to tell kids certain things because they can't handle it, right? And so the same, I think, goes for God and us. We can make that analogy where even if God told us certain things, his good reasoning for certain things, what makes us think that we would even understand what he was talking about? And if he did explain it, what makes us think we'd be ready to handle it? So we often withhold certain things. And if you think about Job, right? Job never gets an answer. And God just says, Job, are you the one who basically is creator of all things and runs everything in the world? And Job says, no, right? I don't understand. I can't grasp all of these things because I'm not the creator. You are, and you have all the wisdom. I can't handle it. And Job acknowledges that and he never gets an answer, but he puts his faith in God and he trusts him. Okay, so I've kept you here long enough. Um, Just one final encouragement. I think Proverbs 18, 17 uh, is encouraging to me uh, where it says the first to state his case seems right until another comes and examines him. I'm sure we've all been in situations where we've interacted with family members, friends, people on campus that seem really smart, people who are non-believers, and they press us on issues and questions about our faith. And we our hearts start racing, we get all warm, and you know, we kind of start freaking out a little bit. And we can think, right, and they can think too, just because we don't provide an answer in that moment, just because we don't have an answer right now, doesn't mean there isn't an answer, that there isn't a good response to the objections of Christianity, okay? Excuse the double, triple negatives or whatever. But, uh, okay, and then also, sorry, I do always want to ask, right, whether it's myself, anybody else, believer, unbeliever, right, if someone doesn't want to believe, even though there is good, plausible evidence for Christianity, you have to ask why. You have to ask why. And I think, again, there's always going to be deep down a heart issue. There is always going to be some sort of ulterior motive, um, and we might not know what that is, right? Um, but we always want to ask, why don't, why don't you want to believe? Right? Um, I think that's a valid question to ask people. Why don't you want to believe? Okay, so just some resources. Uh, so as I mentioned, these are some books. Uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, I think that's pretty accessible for, for most people. I think, yeah, most Christians or many Christians have, have read it. There's a book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Sean and Josh McDowell. Um, I forget which one. Is the, I think Sean is the one at Biola. Uh, he teaches apologetics, I think. Uh, Surviving Religion 101 by Michael Kruger. Um, he had Bart Ehrman as his professor. Bart Ehrman is probably like the number one skeptic, like scholar that you know, does scholarship against the validity of the New Testament and its manuscripts. So Michael Kruger, uh, he wrote a book, Surviving Religion 101, uh, On Guard by William Lane Craig. That's a book. Uh, Tactics by Greg Kukul. I think that's just a good book, not on giving you defenses of the faith per se, but it's kind of um, giving you strategies, um, kind of just different ways of approaching talking to people and when people raise questions and kind of guides you through that. And I found it really helpful. And it's really, or it's pretty short and accessible. Okay, and then online, like, honestly, like I get most of my stuff from YouTube. Like, that sounds terrible, but like, (laughs) 
or YouTube or like articles. There's so many good debates like on YouTube that you can watch and it's amazing. Like, and they're like legit, right? So there's the debate between William Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens on the existence of God. And um, yeah, there's some moments where he just like embarrasses Christopher Hitchens. Like it's, William Lane Craig is, um, yeah, just really does his homework and that debate is really good. It's really long, but really good. Um, there's the debate between Dan Wallace and Barton Ehrman on the reliability of the New Testament. So that one, so with Bart Ehrman, who knows who Bart Ehrman is? Okay, so Bart Ehrman, if you watch that, I, I do want to say you just got to be careful with him because he's really persuasive and he's really, like he has really good rhetoric. And I think it can co- kind of sometimes uh, distract from his actual arguments where he does make really, really good arguments, like good scholarly arguments, uh, no one doubts that, but I think sometimes his rhetoric can kind of inflate his actual arguments. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and if you do watch it, please come talk to me. I'd love to talk about it with you. Then there's the debate between R.C. Sproul and Greg Bonson. Um, it's a debate between classical uh, apologetics and presuppositional apologetics. So they're two Christians, and they're debating on which method is the best method, best method, or the better method. Um, okay, and then there's Lee Strobel, Case for Christ. There's a book, and it's also on YouTube. John Lennox, he, so he's at Oxford. He's actually a mathematician, right, scholar at Oxford. And um, I think he does a lot of stuff on, cos- like, the cosmological argument, teleological argument, that kind of stuff. Um, and then D.A. Carson, so this is a good book, How Long O Lord, for... The problem of evil and suffering. This one's like a little dense, but I still think it's it's really helpful. Um, yeah, and I just want to say I don't agree with all of them, <laughs> even though most of them, or yeah, like these Christians who I'm recommending, like I don't agree with all of them on like their theology and like even certain approaches to certain things. So uh, just want to, you know, just want to say that. Okay, but that's it. Yeah, I'll pray for us. I'll let you go. Yeah, I kept you here for a long time. So if you have questions, you could, you could ask me after, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that uh, you have gifted us with, with not only faith uh, to believe, God, because that is required. God, we need you to, uh, to save us and to raise us from the dead and to give us new hearts. God, but you have also given us uh, reasons to believe where our faith isn't completely blind, but we have... Um, yeah, proofs and evidences to look at that you've provided in your grace to strengthen our faith, to see that uh, you are trustworthy, that your word is trustworthy, God, and all the promises and the hope that we have in it uh, is trustworthy, God. And so um, we just pray that that would strengthen us, um, strengthen the fact that you are real and and that you are worth following and living for. So please help us, God, because I know some of us here might be struggling and might have doubts. God, and and may they bring these things uh, to you, uh, wrestle with these things, um, holding on in faith, God, and um, and having patience and and trusting in you. So please be with us uh, now and as we go out into our uh, various lives, God, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys.